Welcome to Status Check with Spivey, where we talk about life, law schools, law school admissions. We're sort of on this series of interviewing law school admissions deans. And today I get to interview someone I've not only known, but also learned from and admired for many, many years, Dean Z of Michigan Law. And I think it's going to be a really open, candid, thoughtful conversation. We cover a number of topics, but we cover at length bad admissions advice, things said online, things said by other entities, authorities, et cetera, that are said with such confidence that people tend to believe them and then want to replicate that advice, but it's actually not what you want to do. So we spend a good portion of this podcast identifying ways to detect bad admissions advice, how to avoid it, and maybe how to use other resources just to verify things you're hearing. Sarah has a world of experience. I think rightfully so. She is very recognized in admissions as not just amongst admissions officers, which she is, but also among applicants as someone who's transparent, someone who knows what they're talking about and someone who to go to. So without further delay, let me turn it over to our conversation with Sarah. I am honored to be on with a friend, someone who I would, dare I say, call a mentor in admissions. Dean Z of Michigan Law has done admissions longer than I have. She's been in the spotlight in admissions much longer than I have and dealt with it with a lot of grace and a lot of good information to the public. So welcome, sir. Thank you so much, Spivey. I'm really happy to be here. I'm honored that you would think of me as a mentor in any way, because I feel like I've learned a lot from you. So that's the way it goes. Two-way street on mentoring, right? It's gone in both directions, and I still will keep learning, including from this podcast, hopefully. But let's start off with you. You're both a lawyer. You were a practicing lawyer up till recently, I believe, and a dean of admissions. I think the last time we looked at it, something like 88% of the top 50 deans of admission at least had a JD. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it was a preponderance. Mm-hmm. Now, we looked at it years ago, so that might be changing over time. What's the difference between practicing law and being an admissions dean? They're wildly different, I would say. That is why until recently, yeah, I did, I practiced... I practiced full time for seven years and then I went to work at the law school, but I stayed active mostly with the ACLU as a cooperating attorney or volunteer attorney until a couple years ago. And the reason it was possible for me to make time for the ACLU work is because it's such a different sort of work. So it didn't feel like just doing the same thing on top of my regular job. It just felt like a real pivot. So I would say I, I do almost exclusively appellate work when I practice. And so it's just a ton of long writing and reading long opinions and doing a lot of research and an analysis. And in law school admissions, the work that I do tends to be very quick. So I, I answer a lot of emails, I read an application, and then I read like 200 more applications, right? It's a very quick turnaround on most of the work. There's not the occasion to dive deep into any one thing. And I really enjoy both types of work, honestly. So, but I haven't practiced, I will say, in a few years because I've been doing it on my own for so long. I, I began to get worried that I would start committing malpractice if I didn't, if I kept it, if I kept it up. The malpractice is a good jumping point to a story. I just, anecdotal story from my admissions life of the Venn diagram of where practicing law and practicing admissions actually overlap in the middle. I mean, I'll tell you the story. You can tell me if I'm A, violating FERPA law, 
And in which case we'll delete the story. And B, I'm curious what you, where you would have landed on this. When I was at Vanderbilt, we had a 12-year-old. She was 11 at the time. She would have been graduating at 12. Maybe she applied to Michigan. You had to make a similar decision, but applied to Vanderbilt Law School. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the dynamics of a 12-year-old, the pressures on a 12-year-old, starting with a cohort of 20 to 30-year-olds. And there's a lot of research. I think we're going to try to have someone named Patrick Krill on the podcast, research on how law school can kind of damage a certain number of people through the three years of the law school process. The stresses can make them less kind, more prone to substance abuse. So we had that discussion where we landed on, and there were no JDs in our office, I do not believe. I think the dean of admission had a EDD. No one had a JD. So I think we maybe we got the general counsel's office involved, but we landed on it would be age discrimination to read the file as this person is 11 would be matriculating at 12. So we couldn't factor that into admission. Have you ever seen anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, all the time, there's all kinds of information that appear in an admissions folder that, you know, is a potential for discrimination, I suppose. So, for example, if people talk about their religion, if people talk about their age, if people talk about a disability status. So so there is a fine line between understanding the candidate as a full human being and understanding what they will contribute to your institution and not using that information in a discriminatory way. I think it's always complicated. So I would say for your 12-year-old that what you can't do is say, we don't admit 12-year-olds. What you can say is, I'm reading this application and the person sounds like they have the maturity level of a 12-year-old. And that is not great for being a lawyer. But you can have a 12-year-old who is extremely mature. So you can't look at that age. So You should speak at LSAC conferences. I'm sure they've they've never had you do that before. (laughs) I've done that a few times. I heard you. I could I could quote you. I can literally quote some of some of the talks I've been to. (laughs) Hence the mentorship. We'll talk a little bit more about your experience as a dean of admissions. You're sort of universally known in the admissions world amongst applicants as Dean Z. True. I'm sure there's some things that people assume about your job that are accurate, that you love. And then well, let's talk about those. And then I assume there's some stressors that no one who's ever done admissions would ever think about. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I love my job. I really do. I think it was Bill Fitzsimmons from Harvard okay. said doing admissions is balancing trade-offs 24-7. When you're putting a class together, you have a vision of it. You want it to be a certain size. You'd like it to be composed of people from across the country. I, for example, I need to think about having about 20% of the class has to come from the state of Michigan. You want some scientists, you want some poli-sci majors, you want some people who've come straight through, you want some people who have some work experience, you know, you have this whole sort of general idea and you have people who also have ideas, you know, on on the faculty, in the student body of what they want to see. So, you know, I'll have student groups who will say, you haven't been admitting enough people from XYZ group that is in our student group and we really want more representation. And I have been really fortunate that those conversations have all been always great, I would say, with our students or we work together when that happens. But it's everyone you admit comes at the expense of someone else you don't admit. So you're balancing trade-offs. Yeah. I think something I've learned over time is you have to learn as you progress to this world to say no more than you have to as a teenager or a 20-year-old. And what I've learned is every time I say no to something, I'm saying yes to a different opportunity. I think that's really true. Uh, it's certainly true in admissions and, you know, in a very literal sense, I can admit a certain number of people to get a certain size class. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to work for a place where 
if I'm admitting about 850 people, there's at least another 850, if not more, who I would also be very happy to admit. And that's what makes the job exciting and challenging. I think one of the interesting nuances of admissions is every time you say it's medians, not means, not averages. So if you say yes to enough people at a certain, like last cycle would be a classic example with the LSAT distribution, particularly 170 to 180, tremendously up, that actually led to more opportunities later in the cycle to say yes to people below the medians because everything was locked in. I heard you discussing that with Dean Perry on a couple weeks ago. I thought that was an interesting... Do you know her, by the way? A little bit. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. I will share with you that Dean Perry has a really great vacation home on Lake Michigan. I know. Do you want the public to know that? Okay, well, then we'll have to cut that out. No, she's good. I don't think Lake Michigan there. I won't even tell you what state it's in, okay? So it's pretty, yeah, you can walk around the whole lake and see if you can figure it out. But uh, we have a tradition of getting together for a weekend in January or February and reading (laughs) files. And then, you know, at night after we've done reading files at night, we drink and eat and it's delightful. And sometimes we use it like a nice face mask. That's the other thing we like to do. Anyway, Dean Perry, awesome. So the way I try to go through the season is at the beginning of the season, you know, I'm making a guess based on what I can see in August and early September, actually all the way through like mid-October is when I'm, I'm looking to see like, what are the patterns looking like? How many people seem to be applying? What do the LSAT distributions look like? What do I think reasonable target median is? Now, frankly, until last year, that doesn't usually change for us. It's a 169 has always been our target for many, many, many years. And that seems just right for us. And I don't really have ambition as a general proposition of having it be any higher. Last year was exceptional. But anyway, at the beginning, I set my targets and I proceed accordingly. And I I sort of anticipate that I will be admitting a certain number who are over on both numbers, a certain number who are high LSAT, low GPA, certain number, high GPA, low LSAT, and a certain number that are under on both numbers. I try not to fill up any one of those categories too quickly as I proceed through the season because I like to see, you know, the whole range of who is in this pool. It's heartbreaking if you just immediately spend all your money, as it were, in a given category, and then you're in March and reading the application of someone who applied on the deadline, and you adore that person and don't have room because you've filled up all of one category. I would suspect that there's a very strong correlation between years of experience and emissions and rate at which you, quote, fill up those buckets. The longer you've done emissions, the slower you fill up those buckets. I'm sure that is. I mean, I can say that is certainly true for me. I have gotten a lot more controlled and confident, frankly, over the years, confident that the pool is going to have lots of wonderfulness in it and to just pace myself. So speaking of sort of over the years, you've been at Michigan Law the entire, your entire career. Oh, yeah, baby. I mean, I love my job, but a huge part of it is because I love Michigan Law School and because I'm an alum of Michigan Law School and I loved my time there deeply. And so that's a huge part of my joy and satisfaction is feeling like I am working with an institution I deeply admire. I can vouch that you would never leave because I've tried to get you to join our team over at Spivey Consulting 632 times. <laughs> I can fact check the emails, but I think that's right. <laughs> so I can vouch that you're never leaving Michigan. What do you like about being there? A huge part of it is just the people. A certain kind of person who has traditionally been attracted and enrolled at the school. And I'm from the East Coast originally, so I was 
very skeptical of the Midwest when I, I came here for law school. And then it turned out that in my heart, I am a Midwesterner. I realized this. There's just a different ethos, a different way of interacting with people. More kind, I would say. Like, I'm not going to insult the East Coast, my home. It's my home too, and I insulted them. I also adore it. I found it a very comfortable place to be, and I love the people here. So looking for people who I think are particularly well-suited for this traditional ambiance, if you will, that we have at Michigan, I very much enjoy. Actually, shortly before we started talking, I got a, a text from someone, who an alum from like four or five years ago, who I just have been stayed in touch with. And she just got engaged and she's like, I'm coming to the football game. Can I swing past your house to introduce you to my fiance, you know, at 9 a.m.? Like, that's just thrilling. Like, I'm like, I get to be kind of an auntie to, so far I've admitted something like 6,500 people who are now alumni of Michigan Law School. So that's pretty awesome. When I was at Vanderbilt, I used to always do a personal trip to Michigan and I would take like six to 10 admitted students to Grazzi out to dinner. Oh, yeah. The reason why I would do that, Dean Z, is because <laughs> my boss or the dean of the law school, Kent Siverud, who you know, who's also sort of my mentor now. Mentor to me too. Right. I think he won the teacher of the year award or whatever at Michigan, but he was a Michigan alum and a Michigan faculty before he became dean at Vanderbilt Law in his, I think his early 30s. So I was like, oh, yeah, I know how to impress the dean of the law school. I'll get like our 10 best in Michigan admits and take them out to Grazzi and they'll certainly all 10 will come to Vanderbilt. It didn't quite work like that, but that was a wonderful <laughs> restaurant. Is it still open? Did it make it it is still open. Yes, it is. I like Grazzi, but it's not my top 10. So that I think was your mistake. Oh, I didn't know you at the time. I was, I was, I was like 24 years yeah. old. I was actually thinking maybe you took them to Grazi because it wasn't like the best that Ann Arbor has to offer. And so you're like, see, this is... Right, right. Come to Nashville. We have better Come dining. to Nashville. Has be yeah, right. You won't have to eat this tortellini. <laughs> uh, okay. There's a lot of bad admissions advice out there. So much. The genesis of this on my side of the firm, part of it was just reading people with no admissions experience say with great confidence, do this. And they would say it with so much confidence, a hundred other people would repeat it with confidence. You know, I would hear law schools saying something not as an absolute, but as a suggestion. And then all the applicants took it as like, not only an absolute for that law school, but an absolute across all law schools. You know, these stories as well as I do. I could start off with a story of bad admissions advice that be probably became universalized or you could, it doesn't matter. I mean, I just want to echo before we get into the specifics, I want to echo how much I agree with the idea that there's almost, they could even make this a universal statement. Like I just, in general, I think universal advice is flawed, right? You need to know the actual applicant you are speaking to and understand that person's story. Different schools have very different approaches, but it's a fine line because you want to be useful to people and sort of give general lessons but you don't want them to hear it as meaning you must never deviate from this and there can be no exceptions. So it's just, it's a hard line, I think, to walk, uh, to be useful and not to be taken as meaning more than you do. I did a podcast on bad admissions advice and I said one of the detection mechanisms for your early warning signal that bad advice is coming is when someone, anyone says something as an absolute. Yeah, totally agree. I also think you need to be careful about taking advice from people who are not currently working in the, the field. I think lawyers who applied 30 years ago will give you advice that might have been good advice 30 years ago, and they may not really know much about admissions or about law schools in this particular year. It literally comes from every angle, parents, lawyers, 
pre-law advisors, and I'm going to reiterate, I don't mean every parent. Some have great instincts. I don't mean every pre-law advisor. Some are just incredibly knowledgeable, and I've hired two of them. That's how knowledgeable we trust in them. But it can come from LSAC. It can come from admissions consulting firms, and we're not immune to this. I'd probably have said things with too much confidence that don't, don't hold true for every school in the past. I'm certain I've made predictions that haven't come out exactly as I thought they might. It could come from law school admissions officers themselves. I'll give you one story. Many years ago, I was in an LSAC forum and the brand new admissions person next to me kept misquoting her school's LSAT. I knew her school's LSAT and she didn't. So <laughs> what she was quoting was that median LSAT of their admitted students, not the matriculant medium. And eventually I kind of like, you know, this is kind of obnoxious, but also helpful maybe. I tried to like explain the difference or bring up the difference. She corrected, but full form long, she wasn't expressing her schools. Now that's a very silly, trivial example, maybe, because people could look that up online. I'm sure you have many examples and I do too. So I think one of the things that people love to give advice about is how to choose where to enroll. And they like to say with great confidence, either go to the school that is cheapest, go to the school that is best. And I put that in quotes, what they, I think, typically mean is most highly ranked, which does not mean best in any way. Go to a school that is in the area that you know you want to practice. All this, like, where you should go advice, that is so nuanced and so particular to a given candidate and what that candidate's goals are what the particulars of the schools are that the person is choosing among, it is ludicrous to just come up with some kind of rule. You really need to ask a lot of questions. Now, if someone were asking me, how, how should I decide where to enroll? My answer would be probably long and tiresome, but it would, it would give you a number of factors that you need to be thinking about. You need to think about what they mean to you. So it would be sort of a rubric as opposed to some quick and easy, here's right. the rule. Even with our clients, I'm hesitant to say we get asked, understandably so. It's in some sense our fiduciary responsibility to weigh in. Sure. But we get asked, okay, I've been admitted to these 10 schools. Where should I go? And my response is often, well, I don't know, because I don't know your life history, your parents, your aspirations as well as you do. I could tell you where I would go knowing as much about you as I do. But what I know about you is a fraction of what you know about you. So ultimately, I can't tell you where to go. It's my goal is to try to get you into as many schools as possible, help you navigate the process. Right. I am often asked, what should I write about my personal statement? My answer is almost exactly what you just said. Like, I have no idea because I do not know you, but I can tell you how you should approach figuring out what you want to write about in your personal statement. You should be thinking about, you know, what what is it you want the admissions office to think about you when they stop reading? Like, what impression do you want to leave them with? Like, what are the your traits, what are your characteristics, what are your skills that you want them to be aware of? And what about your story isn't clear from the rest of your application materials that you need to perhaps emphasize for the admissions office? And that can be done in so many different ways. So if I can give another piece of advice that I hate, sometimes admissions officers will say, I don't like essays about and then whatever it is, like, I don't like personal statements about study abroad. I don't like personal statements about Teach for America, things like that. Experiences that a lot of people have that affect people often in a very similar way. And what the admissions office means when they say I hate those essays is they are often very similar. And so you don't really stand out when you choose that topic. But it, it's a dumb thing to say because obviously you can have essays on those topics that do reveal important things about the person that are not the kind of essay that anybody could write, right? That is very particularized. Just to knock out a huge 
topic, a class of topics from uh, the topics of a personal statement, I think is, I understand what they mean when they say it, but it's not good advice. Well, again, that hit the circuit breaker. That was spoken as an absolute and there are no absolutes. Right. Look, if you're writing to impress an admissions office, horrible idea. If you're writing for yourself, it's probably, even if the topic is not differentiated for 99 people, your one story for yourself might be the one out of 100 that is differentiating. We had an applicant who wrote about a freaking cat when she was eight. She got into so many schools above her medians. Why did she get into so many schools above her medians? Because that story mattered to her. Her crazy neighbors had lawyers with fancy words and big suits that scared her come away and take their cat as a child. What the and, hell was wrong with that cat? I, no, nothing. It was what's wrong with the neighbor, not the <laughs> cat. But she was writing this as a paralegal who now was no longer intimidated by lawyers and suits with fancy words because she understood those words. That's that great. cat story was a formative story. So yeah, if someone called me and said, hey, I want to write about my cat Jazzy, I would say maybe, maybe not. But I certainly wouldn't say as an absolute, never not. It's just so much is about the story. There was a, I think a threat, well, there's all, every year there's a threat about people upset with their pre-law advisor's advice. And to be fair, again, there's lots of pre-law advisors out there that give good advice. And there's lots of brand new pre-law advisors or pre-law advisors who are political science professors who have never seen a law school application before. But I always think back to the story that a dean of admission at a conference I was at said, so it's a conference, uh, it's the merger of pre-law advisors and admissions people, which is a great idea, by the way. And admissions people often are on stage giving advice, and the, particularly the new pre-law advisors are taking in the advice, also good. So the dean of admissions says to 200 pre-law advisors, probably 100 of which are brand new, someone asked about engineering versus political science, and this person said, I would always take a 3.0 in engineering over a 4.0 in political science. Well, a couple things. One, boom, there's that always, an absolute. Number two, that's not really the case. You and I both know you're not going to always take a 3.0 because they have an engineering or you're going to bring in an entering class with a 3.0 and this school's entering GPA was probably like a 3.8. So number two, that's patently false. I can empirically show that. But here's the most deleterious part of all that. Now you have 200 pre-law advisors. Think about the multiplying effect. Let's say each one of those pre-law advisors has 100 advisees. That's 2,000 students that are potentially being given the absolute wrong advice because someone took that bad advice and believed in it because it came from an authority. Right. I am sure what that person meant to say was maybe the GPA itself is not particularly instructive. What is instructive is the entire academic record. So I can't tell you that I'm not going to admit somebody with a 3.0, even though I don't admit many 3.0s, because maybe that person's was majoring in something incredibly difficult that I value in my class. And I can't tell you that I will always take a 4.0 because maybe that person was taking classes that were less challenging and they just don't have a, an impressive overall record, even though they have this great GPA. I'm sure that's what that person was trying to convey. But yeah, it's really misleading to say it in those terms. And it is, if not actually deceitful is a strong word, so I won't say that. But yeah, if that were true, I mean, poli-sci majors are the most common major in, I'm going to guess, everybody's law school class. Yeah, almost every year, I think the data the LSAC produces shows that. The forgiving way of interpreting that is maybe that Dean of Admissions just slightly misspoke and shouldn't have said, I would always. The much less forgiving way to interpret that is, well, I'm now going to have these pre-law advisors send me a bunch more applicants. 
Yeah, but I will say, okay, so there's that's a good pivot to other advice so that does drive me crazy, which is people telling applicants, your numbers are below that school's median. So don't bother because it is all LSAT and GPA and you won't get in. That's just incorrect. Now, it doesn't make it more likely that you will get in if your numbers are below the medians. It makes it less likely. That's just right. likelihood. That is not a, a flat out rule. My favorite candidates are often the people who are below medians, my favorite candidates that I admit. But that's it's a tautology because, of course, that's true. Like, I have fewer of those spots yeah, to give sure. away. So, yeah. of course, it's the people who are most interesting and exciting that I am giving right. them to. And those are the ones who really stick in my mind in a, in a given class. We also have really interesting people who have numbers that are not below the median. But like I say, I can't admit a ton of people below the median. So those are the ones that get me most energized and optimistic about the future of the profession. So every year there are people like that, obviously. If you're an applicant who thinks you're, you've got a lot to offer and that you're your numbers are the things that are holding you back. Well, many, many admissions officers may feel the same way as you do about yourself if you present one, yourself well. One way I, I also conceptualize this is for 22 years, obviously numbers matter probably the most, but I've seen people with the same numbers, some of which have been admitted, some of which have been indefinitely waitlisted, and some of which have been denied. With the right. same numbers, same right. diversity or ethnicity or gender. So there's obviously this multivariate mix of things that go into an application. If you could take 60 people with the same numbers in the cycle, exact same, you know, stats twins, they would say. And some are getting into that school and some aren't. The, the application does matter, obviously. Yes, yes. I mean, if you look, sometimes you can find breakdowns uh, in a quadrants of LSAT and GPA plotting against each other in little little squares of like how many applicants were in a given category, how many people were admitted, and how many enrolled in a different category. And I obviously know Michigan's numbers, not that familiar with any other school's numbers, but there is no little square like that where we are admitting even 50% of the people in a square. So like 175 and up and 3.9 and up, those are great numbers, but not everybody seems right. I get to make a lot of choices and I make choices in all those categories. And then, so then 3.0 and 157, I admit people in those categories too. Would it be fair to summarize this as, and I'm going to speak as an absolute, ironically, <laughs> don't take anyone's advice universally, including Mike Spivey, including Dean Z, including anyone, because nothing is universalizable and ping things off other people to the extent that you can, but also don't worry if someone stands on a stage and it says whatever law school behind that stage and they say you have to have a one page resume, but that school's application says we don't have a resume preference, follow the applications and don't worry about what one person says. They might be brand new or they might be having a bad day or they may have misspoken. That's True. I agree with that. I will say, though, that sometimes schools write things that are not accurate. I try to be very transparent, very open. I've always, that's been like my way of going through this career since I started in 2001, trying to be as honest as I possibly can be. You know, I started at the beginning saying every admissions officer is balancing trade-offs at all times, right? And so a school may say, we're happy to take a two-page resume, but may really feel like I'd really rather just have a one page resume. So they may say two page and mean one page. And maybe that person who was on the stage was being honest in a way that the school 
maybe doesn't want him or her to be. Before we panic the market, I'm going to guess because people have already applied to your school or have, will be applying yeah. with 20 years work experience that yeah. have a two-page resume. No, no, no. Right. I will say I personally would always rather have however much information you think I need to have. I mean, I want it to be well edited. I want you to be thoughtful about what you include. I don't want you to just spit everything out without taking any time to clean it up, right? And then I will say, like, I don't know anybody who feels like I don't want a two-page resume. I don't know anyone in admissions who feels that way. What I'm trying to say is that sometimes you have to get information from a lot of sources and sort of analyze it for yourself and think what really makes sense here and what you have to exercise some judgment. You can't just take an answer or advice and assume it is correct. Things I probably said when I was in admissions, I would undo after 10 years of this side and getting to know applicants so personally, you know, in one case, I think 30,000 emails with one of my clients. Please don't do that, anyone. You know, hundreds of hours on the phone or 50 hours on the phone. What you start learning is things that are said by what seems like definitive authorities. I know you, you are transparent. I, to begin with, we wouldn't have anyone on our podcast who we think is not transparent. So the person who said that thing to the real advisors, I would never have on my podcast. And you're at the highest end of transparency. Sometimes we even fool ourselves in the missions, I think. We fool ourselves in life. The stories we tell ourselves, there's this story, and then there's that story, and then in between is reality. I think where hopefully we're landing is trust your instincts. Don't just trust one. One person saying one thing on one day might not be what you want to post on Reddit and say everyone should do it this way always. Yes. And recognize that when someone is stating a general rule, it is a general rule. It is not a rule that applies in every single circumstance. Although I do think I have one rule that I came up with yesterday. On our website, we have a list of everyone on on the admissions staff, including the person who is our first reader of applications. A person's job does not involve talking to students or interacting with the public at all. That person is a specialist for reviewing applications. And I put her info there because I, again, transparency, I just, I think that is helpful to know who is doing that job if you want to know. But we got a question from someone who said, I want to write to her to let her know all about me so that when she's reading my application, she can really be thinking of me. Now, that's a bad idea. Look at how the school tells you to communicate with them and then do that. Whatever that school is saying about who you should be communicating with and how, you really need to follow that advice because emailing people who are not being held up as spokespeople to the public bad idea and will be deeply annoying to the people you reach out to. We can talk a good deal on our blog about boundaries. Another way of thinking of a very universalizable truth is just be kind through the process. You might be having a bad day, so don't call the law school that day. If you can't control your impulse on that day, and we all have bad days where we're going to be more, you know, sleep deprived days. The only days I ever sort of show agitation at people at my firm are days I'm really sleep deprived. Four days you didn't work out, I'm guessing. I'm in a boot right now, a stress fracture boot from running on a stress fractured foot for a year. So yeah, I might be agitated right now. I'm sorry. I apologize, Sarah, for all my agitation. <laughs> You're making me cry, Spivey. <laughs> Four weeks is intolerable. But <laughs> if you can be professional and kind throughout, this is to me professional patient persistence. And I don't want to over fine point the word persistence. 
But if you stay in touch with schools professionally and very kindly, slowly at a measured pace over time, it can't possibly hurt you. It's only going to help you. If in turn, you're showing up at their parking garage where their car is and sitting on their car, that happened to me once, that's a boundary that you don't want to cross. Yeah, that's right. I think all admissions officers have occasional stories of people who are alarming in their enthusiasm. Can you and, share us a story? I mean, I, I actually don't, I don't have, oh, you know what? I have one, I have one from many, many years ago. This isn't quite on point, but it's close. We had someone who we had admitted and we had a deposit deadline and this was probably 15 years ago. So the deposits were mostly coming in by check exclusively. I, we were not taking credit card payments. So, you know, you say the deposit deadline is April 30th, but you know, if you get a check on May 1st or May 2nd, that counts, right? <laughs> when you have an April 30th deposit deadline and people have to mail things in. Anyway, for people who didn't send in their deposit, we sent a little email that said, we didn't get your deposit. So we assume you are going elsewhere. If we've made a mistake, please reach out and let us know. We're happy to figure out what's going on. It was a very non-threatening kind of email. This person got it on a Friday, got that communication on a Friday and first found my home phone number in the book. And I was traveling for work. So he got my husband at 1130 at night. My husband's like the calmest person in the world. My husband said, she's not here. The person said, well, I'm going to try the assistant director then. My husband said, take my advice. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. But the person did do that, went on to call the number two in my office at the time and woke her up then at midnight. And long story short, we did not extend that person's deadline to submit their deposit. I'm not surprised. They probably also don't know. I'm going to to tell something personal about your husband. That he's six foot six, 300 pounds, and he used to (laughs) football for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's not, he's none of those things, but he is a federal prosecutor. So that's even better. I wish I told the truth. (laughs) Um, Speaking of telling the truth, let's end on maybe this note. Is it fair to say, I don't want to go too deep down this path. Do you think it's fair to say, because I know you've seen 20 plus, well plus years, that probably when social media message boards started popping up, there's a feeling amongst applicants that schools are reading all their posts. So I think there's an overemphasis on that. But Mm -hmm. I also think, and this is very important to point out, I think there's an underemphasis on if a school does zoom in on you because you're saying some sort of inconsistent, incoherent things. It's a lot easier to figure out who someone is on social media than I think people realize when they're posting because they're posting 50, 100, 200, or 1,000 comments. And over time, they're reviewing things that align with things in their application. I just remember being on the other side. You can start putting two to two together. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. I will say I never look at these things. I understand people are blowing off steam and they're being negative, and it would just, but it would just ruin me. I, I would not be able to enjoy my job as much as I do if I was really paying attention to those things. But I usually have people in my office who are maybe made of sterner stuff than I am and they look and they will tell me it is for trends, right? You want to know like what is bothering people? What are people's anxieties? It helps us do our job better if we have this information. And so they'll say, you know, the students think that they don't understand this message that we sent out or whatever it is. And I have a very firm policy against trying to figure these people out because I do think you can't take it seriously. You can't judge people by what they post anonymously online. You can't really understand them, I don't think. But it takes about three data points to figure out who anyone is, even in a giant applicant pool. The literal definition of triangulation, right there. Right, exactly. That's right. right. So you are absolutely right. And I know that not every school has my philosophy on this. 
So insult Michigan because we're not going to figure out who you are because it's against my rules. But don't insult other schools. <laughs> they might. The first thing I think I ever read about myself online, I was in my early 30s and someone said, I love Dean Spivey, but boy, does he need to be on ADD medication. I think I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I probably, you know, it, at the time I didn't know anything about ADD or medication. Maybe I should have. But I, I kind of, you know, it was kind of like, ouch, that stings. To the extent that people have impulse regulation mechanisms, don't insult deans of admission, even if they had a bad day, because more often than not, this is how I read it as a 49-year-old. If someone attacks anyone personally online, it's a statement about the place that person writing the attackful statement is. What they're doing is they're numbing, self-medicating, anesthetizing their pain by anonymously attacking someone else. And that's really, you got to like kind of look inward and say, why am I doing this? Why am I making up stories about this school, false stories to numb my own pain? Also, if you're making up false stories about a school, that's when they're going to start triangulating. Right. I will say just personally, I think you just exacerbate your own unhappiness when you're lashing out that way, ultimately. But I will say this, you can say anything you want about me. I'm not going to see it. I don't believe it. If it's nice stuff, I don't, I don't feel like it's good for my personality or my ego to stroke my own ego by reading anything flattering. And if it's mean, that's what my children are for saying mean things to me. Right. No, that, that's right. My children are delightful. They don't, but they, got, they have a six foot six, 300 pound father. So sure. they better back up. Sure. That's my boyfriend. My husband. <laughs> I met the wrong guy. Okay, I'm sorry. I keep getting confused. Is there anything I didn't cover that I should have asked anything you have to ask me? Well, yes, I have a suggestion for a future podcast yes, episode that I would like to l listen to myself, which is, so I, I don't know if you know this by me, but my son went through law school application process last year and um, did not go to Michigan. So if any Michigan students are listening to this, don't worry, you're not sitting next to right, my right. son. But it was very interesting for me to go through that from you know the side of a parent. And I would say that it became clear to me that one spot in which our industry is, I think, really failing is in clarity about financial aid. And I think we need to get our crap together on that and be very straightforward about what we do and don't do in financial aid. And again, this is something I have always tried to do. And I, I definitely, the perspective I got last year made me try even harder and I will continue to try. I think there's a lot of inform good information out there about how to apply to law school and do it well. And I don't think there's a lot of good information about financial aid. So. Getting some financial aid experts on, I think, would be. Yeah, we just had Lauren Williams, who she's a crazy interesting story. She won an Olympic medal in both the Summer and Winter Olympics as a sprinter. Wow. And she's one of, I think, only five people who have ever done that in the world, ever. Mm -hmm. And she's also a student. Thank you for not noticing. But she's also a student loan expert. So she was on her podcast recently. Sorry. But it's a very well-stated point. The two things we really emphasize, mostly admissions, and the other one is self-care, mental health. We have a someone in the September who's a best-selling author who's going to write about his, your relationship with yourself, self-esteem, self-confidence. But we have, I think one of our blind spots is that we only have one or two podcasts or blogs on financial aid, and we could do a lot more of that. Financial aid, frankly, is admissions now. 25 right. years ago, it wasn't that way, but it really is. It's, you know, you can't separate the two. Housing in the same department, housing the same office. Correct. Right. right. I'll go back and listen to your other episodes. I was pretty proud. <laughs> I listened to several. I listened to a lot of podcasts. It's hard to keep up. Please don't feel like listening to things you know 100% about it because you do it all day <laughs> is important for your busy day. Speaking of your busy day, I very much appreciate having you on. 
It's great to see you over Zoom. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know it is great. It's, uh, this has been delightful. Thank you for asking me. I'm very flattered to have been asked. If I happen to be in Ann Arbor, I won't invite you to Grazi, but maybe somewhere. Deal? Yeah, you can come over to my house and I'll make you a cocktail. I'm a great cocktail maker. So You'll be disappointed in how little I drink, but I'm happy to come over your house and we'll figure something out. It's one high quality cocktail. So yeah, okay, I'll do it. Done. Yeah. See, you, right. see you in a couple of days. Thank you, Spivey. Have a great rest of your day.